Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. Go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right, Gary Hall Jr., welcome to the podcast, my friend. How are you? Good, Brett. <laughs> Doing good. It's good to see you again, man. Um, a lot of people have been calling for this one. Um, you know, you and I have talked many times, but you haven't been on the Inside with Brett Hawk podcast. So people have been demanding it. I've been waiting a long time. Am I guess uh, 1027 or wait, <laughs> how far down on the list? I'm how sorry. I'm yeah. sorry I pushed you that far. I apologize. Okay, it's okay. No, it's just no, the no. anticipation has been building for so long. It's finally here. It's, it, I'm like climaxing. <laughs> well, we can, we can open up then. We can just talk about whatever we want to talk about. So I'm actually going to take a different approach with you. I've, I've kind of, I go along the same lines with people, but I'm going to try something different today. How about this? We're going to, I'm going to say a name or a phrase, and I'm just going to get your first reaction. You're just going to go with it and we'll just see where the conversation leads. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. Name association game. Good. Perfect. Um, I tried to pick out some highlights of your life here. So I'm going to start with a big one. I'm going to start with Gary Hall Sr. Father. Do I do a one-word response or do you want me to elaborate? Well, we're going to make this a conversation. So you go as deep as you can on this one. <laughs> yeah, um, I thought it might be rapid fire where you just <laughs> do one-word First no, it jumps to mind. No way. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was uh, obviously a huge influence in my life, uh, as most dads are. Um, and uh, he was a world-class swimmer, 10 world records, world swimmer of the year twice, carried the flag for the United States. The only other swimmer to do that is Michael Phelps in the Olympic Games. Um, yeah. And uh, he, he met my mother, who was a swimmer, at a swim meet, at a swimming pool that my grandfather built. So... Um, yeah, it just uh, a lot of heritage in the sport. And uh, definitely as a youngster, um, was uh, cognizant of, of, of his influence. Well, you've got brothers, correct? I've got two brothers and three sisters. I'm the oldest of six, yeah. So, so why you? you you've, you're coming, you're, you're the spawn of this legend, but I, I would I would argue that your father is a legend, but you became an icon. Like you, you, you always went to a different level than your father. Your your father's one of the greatest swimmers in history. Don't get me wrong, but you are at, at iconic level. So how did you? Why you? Why why this son? You know, I, I think that, that, that there's a lot of pressure um, in, in sharing the same name as my father, and um, it was a lot that I had to deal with in order to be successful in the sport. And then once I was successful in the sport, you can double that pressure on my younger siblings, mm. right? So I think that my brothers had an expectation, not just to match up to my father, but to me. Mm. And so I, that was unfair to them, uh, I, that pressure wasn't coming from me or from my father, but uh, the big shoes to fill. And, and um, you know, those expectations do come from teammates or, or coaches. And so, um, yeah, I think that they dealt with 
a bit of that. So that was a luxury that I guess I only had to deal with the uh, comparisons to my father. Are you a lot like your father in, in terms of the comparisons? Are they fair? No, I'm not like my father. Uh, in some ways, yes, we are all like our father in some ways. Um, but we are very different in a lot of ways. Um, I've always identified as a, a very right brain thinker. I think my father is just uh, more of a left brain thinker. If I can oversimplify it. Your father was uh, academic too. He's a doctor. So were you, were you being pushed into any um, academia as a kid as well as, as the swimming to, to kind of chase that side of things? Uh, no. Um, in fact, I think at one time at the end of my high school career, he was so disenfranchised with the American medical system. Um, frivolous lawsuits uh, and everything that can go wrong and obviously what's been brought into highlight um, rising drug prices insurance reimbursement all the things um, that he was not encouraging me uh, encouraging me to go into medicine in fact uh, it, he was discouraging wow okay now what about your mother what kind of influence did did mom have on you yeah i love my mom <laughs> i love my mom yeah she's uh She's been great, uh, you know, it, through all of the Olympic journey, you know, so much of the attention was, was focused on my father um, mm -hmm. and, and very few people um, kind of asked about my mom along the way. And I think I inherited a lot from her uh, that made me uh, ultimately a little more successful, at least at the Olympic games than my father. Like what? Like, give me some examples of, of some things that you got from your mom that think you think helped you at in in those big moments. I think that she uh, one can has the ability to uh, uh, stubborn is not the right word, um, but but determined. I think I think that she's one of the most determined uh, people that I've ever met. And, and, and knows how to take that determination and, and, and work with others, um, you know, that she never wanted the spotlight, that she uh, kind of played a supportive role uh, through all that media attention on, on what my father had contributed to my success as a swimmer, um, that uh, she, um, you know, did, did it quietly. And, and, and she's Midwest stock. She was, uh, you know, on my mother's side of the family, Cincinnati, Ohio. So... Those are, you know, modest, hardworking, humble people and, and with a self-deprecating sense of humor. And I think I inherited, uh, you know, a lot of that. Um, and, and um, you know, she was always the one that, you know, could one, keep me in check because she could re had the ability to reason, even though she can be, you know, determined and, um, that she had that uh, ability to compromise and, and, and find some uh, reason and, and also that expands upon an ability to pivot, which is uh, critical um, in a high stakes competition. You know, there are always going to be unexpected factors that come in play and, and, and how we can respond to these um, influences uh, greatly determines how successful we can be um, out of it. Was it a normal upbringing for you in terms of like normal in the sense that, you know, when I grew up swimming, my parents knew nothing about swimming. So they kind of stayed out of it. How did your parents influence your swimming career? Well, they forced us to swim at one point. Um, they uh, were, 
my, my father and grandfather built a, the Phoenix Swim Club in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's placed between where we lived and where we went to school. I'm the oldest of 31 cousins on my mother's side, and we all lived it within 10 miles of each other. So it's basically like a daycare center for a lot of the family. Wow. And it was just where we spent every single day after school, uh, before school, once we started doing doubles. Um, and um, yeah, a, a big family-oriented program. And, um, and so, yeah, they, they were very influential in, in, in making, making me swim. They did, I have to say, to be fair to them, they gave me um, the option at one point, uh, you can either go get a job or you can continue swimming. And there was so much emphasis um, on, on swimming. So you asked earlier about academics and stuff like that. I could skate by in school as long as I was showing up to practice and committing myself that way. Mm, um, so, um, yeah, um, very influential. I, I, I went as far as one time uh, applying for a job scooping ice cream and I got the job. And I remember being in the laundry room when I took the phone call and um, they said, congratulations, you've got the job. And the reality that I was gonna be scooping ice cream instead of swimming sank in at that moment and I quit on the spot. Like it is the way that I responded. They were like, congratulations, you got the job. And I said, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to practice that afternoon. So that was uh, one of the close calls where I uh, almost left the sport. You almost went into Ben and Jerry's for life. Wow. Yeah. We could have lost you. <laughs> That's crazy. Were they critiquing your races at that time? No. No, thank God. Uh, you know, he's running the race club. He's a, considered a technical expert, you know, stroke mechanics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Really takes that scientific approach to everything that he's doing there. Um, but he never tried to coach us. Thank God. Uh, it just would not have worked. Um, I, I would not have reacted well. But... Did they come to every swim meet or was it sporadic? No. Um, yeah, I'd see him at the pool. He'd come from um, eye surgery. Um, he was an ophthalmologist and practiced for 25 years. And he'd come in on his lunch break and swim in the master's group. So I'd see him there sometimes um, regularly. But no, he went to the big meets. Um, yeah, normal. Okay. All right. Just trying to get a feel for this. So I've got a pretty good understanding now. So. So when did this all start to click then? When did it, when did you start to realize that you were pretty good at this thing and that you were on kind of this Olympic track? When did that happen? There was a, um, my junior year in high school, um, I was relatively late to the sport. I didn't really start swimming until summer after eighth grade. So like 14 around then, 13, 14. Like, um, like training. Yeah, and then and then it was all in. Like I, I quickly went into doubles and was making up ground, uh, training with Pierre Lafontaine uh, as a distance coach. Um, and uh, so yeah, I was, I was definitely making up ground. But there was no indication that I, I would be an Olympic swimmer uh, or even good until uh, state meet junior year in high school. I placed second, and it was really even though I placed second. Um, you know, really, I think a realization for my parents more than me that I could be good. Um, and it was, um, 
the summer after my junior year that um, I, I had a big breakthrough swim at junior nationals and uh, became a top recruit uh, for colleges that year, uh, following year. So um, I didn't think up until that summer after my junior year that I would swim in college. I wasn't good enough. Were you, were you always the Gary Hall that we know now? Like even back then when you first started swimming, did you have, uh, I mean, I'm sure you had the charisma you always have. You, you just, you have that from, from birth. But, you know, if people were to think back on 14, 15 year old Gary Hall Jr., what do you think they would say about that kid? He's going to end up in jail. <laughs> really? Yeah. It was just, just oh, yeah, wild. Yeah. Oh, I was on a path. I was on a path. Really? Like, uh, yeah. skipping school? What were you doing? Mm. Doing it all? I was arrested a, a, a few times. Just a mischievous stuff. Mischievous stuff. What was what that from, you think? Like, what, why were you doing that at that time, do you think? Like, if you, if you think back to... Uh, my grandpa went to prison. I was affected. Um, yeah, I had a lot of anger. Um, so I started uh, going to therapy. Um, I was forced to a court order type of thing. Um, when I, I, I was sleeping and I punched a wall in my sleep and broke my hand and um, had to have it treated. And they were asking me all these like questions, like how, how did this happen and stuff like that. And when I told them, like they, they like mandated that I start going to see like a therapist and stuff like that. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there, I, it was just, tr I was a troublemaker. I was a troublemaker. And I had a lot of energy, dark energy. Um, and so swimming became a really healthy outlet, um, a way to take dark energy and, and put it in a positive direction. Was it the, the training you connected with or the competing more so? Oh, the competing. And that was real early. I was, I was, I was terrible. I had a, Swim meet in Glendale, Arizona. Um, it was freezing outside. I didn't want to be there. And um, halfway through a 200 race, I locked eyes with a guy that was about a body length ahead of me and something clicked that like moment. And I said, I'm going to beat that guy. And just started, you know, chasing him down. And if you had asked me prior to that breath where I made that decision, if I was given 100%, I would have said, yes, definitely giving 100%. Um, but I found another gear, um, once that click happened and realized that racing is different than training and, and or, or, or the, the, and, and that that's what I loved. And so all the training was never really, um, I, I didn't like it that much, but, um, it was necessary in order to do the racing that I loved. And so, you know, I got through it. That's the guy I want to track down. Who's the guy that triggered Gary Hall? That's the one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, it, we, it, was, it, it was an epic race. It came stroke for stroke down to touch. And I barely out-touched him. And it was for like 67th place at like a rinky-dink swim meet. <laughs> and he probably hung it up a long time ago. Uh, they say the smart ones get out. Okay, every year people ask me what they should get their swimmer for Christmas, and I always tell them the same thing. Get a pair of drag socks made by Aquavolo. It's the perfect stocking stuffer for any swimmer. Honestly, there's no simpler training tool to build power in the water than a pair of drag socks. 
Go to aquavolo.com and use the code BRETT, B-R-E-T-T, at checkout and save 10%. The offer's good only through November, so order now. Well, what I'm interested in is um, we all know about Atlanta and, and kind of what went on there, and we'll talk a bit about that. But how did you get to Atlanta? How did you get through your first Olympic trials? Who did you have to beat? Who, who were the people at that time? I had to beat Tom Jagger, who was my hero. Uh, I mean, if, if I had a hero in the sport, Tom Jagger was the guy. And, I, um, and, and it wasn't until I got to know Tom because I was training in Phoenix with Troy Dalby, who was an 88 Olympian and a Hellraiser himself too. He was one of the guys that notoriously was arrested in Korea, um, disgraced the United States and some Ryan Lochte. He, he was pulled pull the Ryan Lochte before Ryan Lochte. Um, and he was, he was the master's coach at um, the Phoenix Swim Club. And I was training with him a bit and Troy knew Tom um, and so introduced me at uh, a Santa Clara meet or some, you know, some swim meets and stuff. And so it wasn't until I got to know Tom that I really, um, that he became a, a real influence on, on me. And then obviously I became aware of, you know, the Dasher Cash and the races with Matt Biondi and his efforts to professionalize the sport and the vision that he had at the time that he uh, instilled in me really kind of brought to my attention, like, hey, we could be doing a better job marketing the sport. Um, creating more professional opportunities for the athletes, that type of stuff. And um, yeah, I still uh, really respect Tom to this day. But you did have to get over the top of him to make that team. You had to beat him. So yeah, how was, yeah, how was yeah. that possible? And, um, I was uh, uh, pretty brash. Um, I mean, I, I, I knew... I knew what I was going for. I knew what I wanted at that time and um, knew I could take it. Um, I, I, I had, still had to do it, but um, yeah, I, I had hoped that we would make the team together. Um, but uh, yeah, I ended up doing really well at those trials. Who was it then? Who, who was first and second in the 50? Who was first and second in the 100 for, for the US? Uh, David Fox was the other guy in the 50. Mm-hmm. And um, let's see, in the hundred, it was maybe John Olson. Yeah, maybe. John Olson. Yeah. Okay. I think, right. I think it was John. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. So then, well, here's my next big name for you, Alex Popov. Yeah, the Russian <laughs> rocket. <laughs> this is where you. Uh, this isn't the first time you meet him in '96, is it? No. I first met him at the World Championships in 1994. They were in Rome, and um, reigning Olympic champion and world record holder. And um, I, I didn't meet him before uh, the ready room, before finals, uh, really. Um, and um, yeah, he made an approach, came in, went directly up to me, and and. and you know, started saying some things like, oh, what's the medal count for the United States right now? This is a trick question. I'm not paying attention. I, I've got attention deficit disorder. <laughs> you know, like, don't ask me. There's, there's got to be a team manager who can give you the medal count if you're really interested. And yeah, I didn't even know if it was like broken English or anything. And so he's asking me a rhetorical question because obviously he already knew the answer. He's like, oh, 13 or something. He's like, never before at the World Championships has the United States been so far behind in the medal count. 
or so low in the metal count or something like, like that. I was like, oh, interesting. And still trying to like figure out if, if he um, didn't speak English or like this was uh, social etiquette, where he's from, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, and then uh, he's like, well, you know, don't expect to you know, win anymore or something like that. <laughs> and he like made an, like a, another comment that I was like, wow. And so right off the bat, um, I didn't like him. <laughs> and he went on to say, you know, that I come from a family of losers and, 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 you know, was referencing my father because my father never won a gold medal at the Olympic Games. Uh, you know, this is like the first time anybody in the world of swimming was like, your dad's a bad guy or like he came up short or what a failure. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> so, I, you know, there was no love lost between us. I didn't like him. He did not like me. Um, and, and, and he came after me because he knew that I was a threat. And, 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 I, and that was, so that was my indoctrination into the sport and, and, and the ready room. I was like, oh, wow, psychology is, is kind of a big thing here. I wasn't able to articulate that as a teenager, but like, wow, okay, you wanna play head games. That's okay, that's part of this circuit, okay. <laughs> um, and, and so in some ways, I think it was ended up being beneficial to me in the long run because, you know, it, it, it takes a long time to, to, to figure that stuff out. Yeah. And, and um, you know, and learn how to play it or play Ab to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I've got my own Gary Hall Jr. story coming up later in the podcast so based on that but um so 96 then so how do you go in then with the confidence that you had in 96 i mean you're at a home olympics in atlanta you are racing yeah. the the russian rocket the guy that's trying to get into your head he's in great form but you have incredible confidence and it's oozing out of the television screen for the kid back home watching I'm not really a kid, but I was watching back home in Sydney, Australia, but you know, your confidence was oozing out of the television. How did you have that at that particular point in time? Well, I had enough international experience with the world championships in 94. I, I, I placed second to pop off in both the 50 and the hundred freestyle, um, not by much. And then won two golds in the relays there and then went to the Pan Pacific championships the following year and won four gold medals. And so I had enough of a taste of, of what it feels like to, to win um, that I felt like I, I was poised to be a contender, to, 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 you know, that it was going to come down to a few people. And I always kind of recognized that, that there were eight finalists, but you only had to really worry about two or three. And... Um, and I knew Popov was great, great. Um, I, but I, I, but I, I, I felt that he was beatable. And, um, you know, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 but you talk about the oozing confidence part. Um, I, I felt confident, but there's, everybody experiences like the doubts stuff, the doubt um and, and questioning you know 
worthiness to, to, to win, um, you know, and, um, some, you know, deep stuff goes into processing and, and, and I think that ultimately it affects our, our psyche and our psychology and, and, and how, um, you know, do I deserve to win? Like <laughs> big questions. Um, and, and, um, I, I felt like I was ready by 96, physically capable of it. Um, so yeah, I, and, but all the showmanship uh, stuff, like the bravado, uh, flexing and stuff like that. I was doing that a long time before, you know, back before I was even a good swimmer. So what was portrayed in the media is, oh, all this bravado and self-confidence and, and, you know, showmanship and, you know, uh, swagger and you know he's the bad boy of swimming because you know it, all, all that stuff I, I, I hated it um, I hated it and, and, and uh, in some ways even though I, it was done jokingly as, as a mediocre swimmer you know in high school swim meets doing similar things with stick arms you know before I had any muscle on me at all kissing my biceps was a funny thing um, and then, you know, so I was just a continuation of something that I've been doing behind the blocks for a long time. Um, it's just the media portrayal and I sympathize, uh, with, with NBC's, uh, role to try to sum up a person in a minute and 30 seconds, you know, the profile pieces that they do before an Olympic finals that they run, they can't really dive into who this person is. And so they kind of latch on to, oh, this is the, the brash, uh, what, you know, showman. Um, and and I, I felt like that was just a very narrow window of a more complex uh, personality. Um, and I never really appreciated that. I, I appreciated the fact that I was selected because they don't select very many people that they do those profile, profile mm -hmm. pieces on. Um, but yeah, um, that reputation and it, it, there's a formula too. So if you look at in the 92 Olympics too, they select about a dozen athletes, uh, the television coverage, right. And, and, um, you know, from multiple sports and there's almost like a stereotype that they'll like try to fill like, Oh, this is the very confident. This is the quiet stoic type. This is the one that overcame some hardship. Uh, you know, so there's like personality or, or, or mm -hmm. obstacle overcome stereotypes that they'll always kind of do at, you know with and just swap out the individuals it's like they have a team together and identify who's going to be like you know the bleeding heart story uh who's going to be the cocky showman guy um you know and, and so i was i felt fortunate to be getting the exposure but never like being pigeonholed so for you then that wasn't manufactured it wasn't like okay i'm going to be on television there's going to be a way it was it was just you being you is that what you're saying yeah yeah i was always a goofball i mean horsing around and, and just um yeah it, it, you know just laugh laughing about it and and there were that was kind of what made it fun too was that there was like a group of friends back home watching that were all in on the joke and we're just like laughing like, mm -hmm. like it, was, it was funny and it was you know at the time in 96 uh world wrestling uh association or, or whatever the wrestling was like way more popular than any olympic sport mm -hmm. 
And that was all entertainment, you know? These guys are steroid idiots, um, not athletes, really. Um, and, and, you know, look at the television ratings. And, and, and so it hit me that sport is entertainment and that how do we better market our sport to create better professional opportunities for the swimmers? Yeah. It's going to benefit all swimmers. Um, so there was some realization, at least awareness that, uh, this is, yeah, getting a response with the media and stuff was played to it. And I, truthfully, I had a lot of fun playing to it. I mean, it was a fun character to play that was half based in world wrestling entertainment. Um, showmanship pp barnum style you know i loved it man i loved it i'll tell you what it sold me i was into it i couldn't wait to see more but so was there any more of that pop-off then trying to get into your head at the olympics then was there anything oh, yeah. behind the scenes it went back and forth yeah it went back and forth it, 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 yeah yeah I, I i beat him in two olympic games and uh he beat me in one and um you know it, it yeah we were real selective on times. Like I invited him after the 96 Olympics to, to the Phoenix Grand Prix meet that we were hosting. And he did not want to raise me. Um, you know, he, he wanted uh, some outrageous amount of money to show up. And, um, but he didn't, he, you know, it, when we crossed paths at a swim meet, it was rare and it was intense and it was real. That was a real rivalry. And, um, yeah, I, I, a lot of people did notice. A lot of people did, you know, I still, it's one of the top questions, you know, tell me a pop-off story, or, you know, like what, was that, was that real or, you know, were you just forcing around like the shadow boxing stuff? Yeah, no, it, I mean, it, it felt genuine, you know, for sure. Um, I, and, you know, I knew Alex pretty well. Uh, he was obviously living in Australia and there were times when we'd train with him and, you know, occasionally your name would come up and, and, you know, he, he had similar feelings that I'm sure that you have about him, you know, in terms of that the, the rivalry seems real. He didn't like you and I don't think you liked him and, and it showed up in the racing, you know? Yeah. You definitely find, uh, you know, more motivation uh, for training. Um, you know, it, it pushes you, even though we didn't race that often, you know, it, it definitely pushed me in training. I wanted it more uh, to be the one to take him down. Um, but it's it, it, interesting because it wasn't until I uh, learned to respect him that I was able to beat him. Ah, interesting. Talk, talk to me about that a little bit more. Well, just what is he doing right? Let's really break that down. What, you know, let's learn from that. Um, let's not try to mimic it. Let's try to improve upon it. Sure. Um, we're not the same. I knew that. I mean, I, I knew, it, you know, you'd hear stories about, you know, some legendary set that he did or something, you know, that the time that he went and practiced or something like that. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I, I was a totally different swimmer. Um, I was very slow in season and, and uh, couldn't match him if I ever did show up. I said, we raced one time, I think in Monaco or something like that. I mean, he just, I was three seconds behind in the 50 it wasn't even close um why that's an interesting 
uh, point you bring up. It's kind of a tangent, but you were terrible in season, like terrible. Like usually most swimmers, they're a little bit off their time. They're like, oh, when I taper, I'm going to be here for confidence sake. I want to be in this range. But like if I swam Gary Hall times in season, I would have zero confidence. For some reason, you would swim terrible in season and still come to the to the trial meet and be the most confident person there. I'm like, is this guy delusional? Like he's just swam 53 in the 100 free three weeks ago. What was behind all that? It was always the case. I was always slow in season. I, I just couldn't handle the workload. I, I, I'd break down. Um, I was just fatigued all the time. Uh, just physiologically, there was a different, whether it's fast twitch, genetic makeup. But did it not interest you as well? Like, did you just not care about smaller meats? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. I, that 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 is true. So I always liked going out to California meets. I, I was growing growing up. I went to the Mission Viejo meet and the Santa Clara meet and uh, the LA Invitational, the Janet Evans Invitational, or the one at USC um, as an age group swimmer. And so I loved going back to those meets. Um, but outside of those, you know, I went to the Oklahoma City um, professional swim meet maybe twice. Um, but other than that, I only went to Olympic trials or, or trials at nationals. I, I didn't even go to nationals every year. Um, I, I was just swimming for one, one meet. Once I got, once I got to the national team, I was only swimming for the Olympic games. It's the only one I cared about. That's true. And I, and I saw a lot of that, but isn't it the, how did you get your confidence then? Like, how did you get your race strategy down pat where you feel like, okay, I just got to fall in the pool and this is going to happen for me with that type of strategy of like not caring about certain meets and also being, you know, fully broken down and fatigued and being so far off your best. How were you able to then go through a taper period where all of us as swimmers have those psychological questions in our mind of like, is this going to turn out the way I want it to? Am I going to end up on the 27th of June feeling better than I've ever felt before? Um, having all those doubts, how did you get to that point then? I, well, I, I knew that I was, I was always good about listening to my body. I was always very in tune with my body. I, I knew when I had to push it and when I had to back off. And I took a lot of shit for it um, from coaches and from teammates too. Uh, that year that I went to the University of Texas uh, with Eddie, um, Eddie never really, he, he was concerned. He was always very nice about it in, in, in a nurturing way, but I, I was swimming so slow uh, through the midseason of my freshman year at Texas and the teammates. There were a lot of them that did not like that at all. Like mm. I, I had a scholarship, they didn't, mm-hmm. and so it, it created some some rifts and in, in, in team dynamic there. Um, other guys were were you know totally accepting of that, and, and, and but I had to convince people over time that that's the way I operated. That you know mid season, I'm going to be so slow, I'm buried. I know that there's a method to this madness and that ultimately, and that's, and it wasn't like a hidden agenda. Like ideally every swimmer has heard, okay, you're going to go through this phase of being broken down for such a long period of time. And then we're going to rest you. And it's going to have this trampoline springboard effect 
where you, you know, are tapered and you have all this energy and, and, and you're going to swim great at the end of the season, right? Like that, that's the common formula. I just took the divot a lot lower than what most people did. And, you know, I, I think it was, I, I, a lot of it, I didn't have a choice. Like it was just, I would get that broken down. Are you, do you consider yourself, um, special different i mean you you even what you just described is unusual like most athletes don't react that way most athletes react more of the way that your teammates at texas were reacting where it was work hard push through swim really fast in season and then drop a little bit of time that's the majority so how do you categorize yourself are you a very gifted athlete in that sense um no so there's there's training and there's racing and both are technically categorized as freestyle but it might as well be two different strokes backstroke to breaststroke because it's totally different swimming and if you look at a pie chart breakdown of time that we dedicate to aerobic conditioning at least when i was swimming it's the majority of the pie chart Mm-hmm. how much of that and, and you're conditioned through all of that training that every single day in practice you've got 100% effort right coach is telling you okay last one 100% effort on this set you hear it all the time 100% 100% so you are conditioned to believe that that's 100% what you're doing in practice mm-hmm. and so you go to the meet and you're asked to do 100% You've been conditioned to swim the time that you've gone in practice. There's another gear. There's racing. How much of that pie chart that we were talking about is dedicated to recreating specifically the race environment? Mm. To me, growing up, there was only one thing that I remember doing that was that accomplished that. And that was the get out swim. And I don't even hear kids talk about get out swims anymore, but that was the only time where one kid and Pierre used to do this pretty often. And I loved it. One kid gets up on the blocks and there's supposedly one last set, right? And everybody gets out of that last set. If Jeff can go this time, get out swim. Sure. And everybody stops and everybody's got their anticipation, like, please make the time, please make the time. And everybody's focused on one swimmer and you got the stopwatch. That was the only thing that mimicked racing. It, all those like lactate sets and stuff, repeat fifties, whatever. That's not racing. That's not anything close to it. Um, in fact, it's detrimental to be training people saying this is hundred percent. Um, because that's practice and, and, and then there's racing and they're, and they're two very, very, very different things. So you always found when the, I was, I was good at, I, I was good at racing. Yeah. That's, that's what I was. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about that. Um, the, the 10 Olympic medals will have proven that for sure. But, but yes, when the spotlight was on Gary Hall Jr., there was, um, something, something came out of you something something grew inside of you some there was another there was another level that you were able to get to that 
the all the athletes that we just talked about predominantly weren't able to get to you got to a superior level of um performance and they did yeah and so a lot of people um think that oh came up with excuses right for themselves um a lot of those swimmers like oh his dad was a great swimmer genetic inheritance he's just gifted he's talented he doesn't mm-hmm. have to work or whatever like that i was just better at racing than them like and, and, and um the pressure and dealing with the pressure so i've watched a few of your podcasts and you had bart tizarowski on who's a yep. good friend and was he made through a lot of those years and he was talking about how he cracked yep under that pressure now cracks is a varying scale right um but it got inside his head the pressure got inside his head and, sure. and affected him and it only has to affect you a little bit you know a tenth of a second um a hundredth of a second you know so just the, the tiniest little bit um and you're compromised yeah. and so i was um very good at being unflappable uh with the pressure it didn't mean that i wasn't experiencing it i was i, I definitely felt it it's so intense so intense but i i was able to compartmentalize uh enough to um remain focused and, and not let it interfere with my focus on, on getting the most out of my performance. i like that description actually compartmentalize i could never figure out why i was not good under pressure in terms of the Bart Kuzarowski, not good under pressure, you know, that one-tenth of a second where it affects you a little bit. Um, until I started coaching Caesar Siela, until I started seeing what a person who was so good at compartmentalizing under pressure could do in that moment. He was, he was spectacular, better than any athlete I've ever seen in terms of putting everything else aside for just a, a moment in time to focus on exactly what he had to do and, and do it really well um he was brilliant at that for sure so i i was diagnosed somewhere along the line with attention deficit disorder and so i and i am generally like juggling three or four thoughts at a time um very hyperactive not a hyper intelligent mind um and people with this condition have an ability to hyper focus like so mm. when it is just lock going on lock going on and zero it in mm. and then like within such intensity. And I, and I see that in Anthony too. Uh, I was going to say that he, he, he's on my list of people, uh, the, the topics that we're going to talk about, but uh, the, the next, the next big one I want to get to obviously as part of your life is type one diabetes. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Diagnosis came out of nowhere. I was uh, training for 2000. I was a year and a half out from, um, 2000 Olympics and was diagnosed with uh, type one diabetes. It's an autoimmune disease where your pancreas uh, stops producing insulin, uh, the beta cells in there. So um, you have to give yourself shots of insulin um, in order to live. And uh, so I was told um, upon diagnosis by two doctors that uh, it was the end of my swimming career. Um, And uh, I couldn't compete in the Olympic games. Nobody had ever done that before. And, um, and it was something that I struggled with. Anybody uh, faces, facing a, a diagnosis of a potentially life-threatening uh, disease, um, there's uh, 
a lot of questions about our mortality, um, about our purpose, um, re-examining um, past assumptions. And so ultimately what I got out of it in a positive way, a post-traumatic growth thing that happened um, for me out of that diagnosis was it put swimming in perspective. Like this is not really that important. I mean, yeah, I've invested a lot of hours into this thing, but at the end of the day, like if I were to die tomorrow, um, did my 21.7 something really change the world, make it a better place? No. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, and that sounds really negative, but for me, it was a positive because, it, you know, I, I had always maintained a life outside of sports. So I always kind of had a, a more of a balanced perspective on, on, on what this is, mm -hmm. um, you know, what I'm committing myself to in terms of, you know, swimming. Um, and, and so I think ultimately that's what elongated my career so, so much and, um, and, and, and helped ultimately, like once I got to that high intensity pressure of the Olympic games to kind of maintain a perspective that whether you win or lose this race, like you're going you're gonna to be all right. Like there's a lot more to life than this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you obviously figured out a way to, uh, manage it enough to to come back to swimming and 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 do qualify for the a couple more olympics so that was good news for everybody i'll give you another name and you just you go with it uh mike bottom uh yeah mentor i mean he he's a genius um <laughs> uh and uh you know an oddball so i think it connected um in a lot of ways um <laughs> I'm not saying that I connected with him on a genius level. I definitely did not. But, he, you know, he graduated near top of his class in psychology. And he used that psychology every single day in a measurable result environment. Um, and, I've, and I've said this before about him that any other buddy that goes into practice after getting a psychology degree, you know, the person comes in, sits on the couch, says, oh, I feel happier. I feel sadder. How do you spectrum of, of human emotion, right? Like, how do you measure, what, what, what are the measurable results? But Mike was able to take that psychology degree and, and, and address things like motivators and demotivators and, and, and applied to individuals rather than a blanket team approach, um, experiment with what works for this individual doesn't work for this individual. And he was one of the, the first coach that I ever came across that was able to fine tune his approaches based on this psychology insight that he had um, to figure out why we tick, what works. I mean, there were some swimmers that he had to scream at um, in order to get their best out of them. And if he had tried that with me or with Anthony, that, uh, you know, wasn't going to work. Um, so, I don't know. I learned so much from him. Um, I think every swimmer you've had on here has, has you know, cited their coach as being as influential as, as their own father in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, he certainly has been to me. Um, you know, he's a dear friend, uh, brother. Give me an example of a time where 
uh, we'll, we'll have an example of each, maybe where he got it wrong, where he got it right. Let's start with an example of where he got it right for you. What, what was something that you remember where you're like, man, I'm glad I had Mike in that moment? Well, my coaching experience prior to Mike, um, I, had, I had some bad coaches. Um, and and um, Eddie Reese is a great coach, a great coach. But um, but Mike Mike came in and he was not well known. So in '95, that was when he first he had this small group of, of uh, you know he took he got the most out of the, out of the, the swimmers that he worked with when he was yeah. at Auburn under Dave Marsh. Yeah, and it was just for a short period of time that he was there. And um, my father knew Joe Bottom, Mike's older brother, from the Olympic Games. He you know, lost to him uh, by, you know, a little bit in um, 76, um, 100 butterfly. And, um, and Mike was the younger, youngest brother of the bottom brothers from Santa Clara. And so he knew those guys because um, he was competing with Mike's older brothers. And, and so Mike came in and, and we clicked right away. We, I, I had this coach that hated me at the time and, um, and I hated the coach and I was close to quitting and Mike came in and, and it didn't take us long. I mean, within, and he, he's told the story about, you know, our first exchange, like he comes in first time he, he sees me swimming and I'm just doing open turns, you know, just swimming slow back and forth. I, I, I'm not even making like send off times or whatever. I'm just doing open turns and coach so pissed that I'm doing open turns and Mike comes running over. He's like, oh, that's genius. You know, like why practice, you know, sloppy turns? Like if you're going to practice it, practice perfect. And I just kind of like smirk, like, uh, okay. I didn't want to tell him that I don't, I, I do open turns because I don't like water going in my ear, <laughs> which is true. I didn't, my entire career, I did open turns um, in training because I didn't like water going in my ear. <laughs> um, but he, he gave me like all this like credit, which was totally undeserved. And I was like, Oh, well, that's nice of you. I, thanks for the effort. I, I mean, I re recognized that right away, you know, he was a, a psychologist. I yeah. could see that, you know, I had been in therapy enough that I knew these tactics. Right. <laughs> and, and so I, I was amused by it, um, by the attempt to, to, to make that connection with me. And then, you know, but he always went to bat for it, me, you know, like, and, and, you know, was, was considered an outsider in the sport for a long time because of it, because there were a lot of people that didn't, didn't like me, mm. um, didn't like what I was doing. And, um, and, and they were running the sport at the time. And so uh, Mike was never named to a, a coach, like a coaching position on a USA swimming national team, like unbelievably late. I, I don't know when that was, but it, I had, It'd be interesting to find out. I think he'd put in, put in people on Team USA Olympic teams for a long time before they finally like aimed into a coaching position on the team. Yeah, sure. yeah, I believe that for sure. It was uh, was it was there a, was it difficult for you um, in the lead up to 2000 to train with the group that you were training? Because I, I remember in the lead up to uh, especially 2009 for me, I had I had Fred Brusquet and, and Cesar Cielo and and a bunch of other athletes. It was, it was almost like a, a little, 
race club, you know, at Auburn University. We had a very strong professional group of swimmers. George Bavell was there, actually. Um, and I didn't get it right all the time. Was it, was it tough for Mike at that point to balance you and Anthony and, you know, Buck Kizarowski and the other guys, you know, because you're all individuals and you all need to be spoken to differently, but you're all, you're also balancing egos within the pool as well. Right. Yeah. You know, he, he was good about not always reeling that in, you know, there's a, there's a balance where you want that competitive charged atmosphere, but you want to, stop it before it goes to fisticuffs you know mm. like yeah. and, it, and it came close a, a lot of times and so he was a master of being able to allow it allow for that kind of competitive interaction um and and, and the stuff because we were that's what made us better racers because we were contending in, 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 in that environment it was part of our training um and, and so those we were also teammates. We were also very close, but you know, there were plenty of times too where it got competitive and, and, um, and he allowed it, um, to a certain degree. Cool. I appreciate that. So that would, that is my next one is, is Anthony Irvin. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I love that guy. I mean, and what he did in the story. I mean, I, he was I just a kid when he came along, though. Yeah, he was. He was. You know, there, the way Popov identified me early, like he knew right away that I was going to be a contender. Uh, I knew Anthony was going to be one of the three, two, one of the two or three that I, I, I needed to. And, and he hadn't proven himself. He was totally, but I could see right away. Not just the, the feel for the water technique. Um, I could, there's a, the mentality, mentality. And, the, and it's there's something, um, we, we connected, we were, we, were, we were similar in some ways. Um, and so I, I recognized that in him and, and knew right away that he, he was going to be as good as, as, as he proved himself to be. Now, did you feel threatened? Did you take him under your wing or did you push him aside? Both, all three, all the above, yeah. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, we trained together for, uh, you know, a while. And, um, you know, uh, most of the time it, it's a team atmosphere. I, and I was, you know, involved in, in, in assembling the team and, and a central figure and kind of, we were all equals, Mike included. You know, and it didn't matter. It, it, Anthony was, was part of that, accepted um, and included and uh, nurtured. And, you know, but I was describing it earlier, too. It, it's a competitive environment. And I remember there was a, a flare up um, for Olympic trials in 2000 where, you know, we, we you know, we, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we got in each other's faces. It, it, was, it was intense. Just you um, and Anthony alone? Oh, yeah, that, that one in particular. Yeah, I, but I mean, yeah, there was some, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, you're going into battle. Uh, there's, you're, so, um, there's, there's something very primal about asserting dominance um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very violent 
especially we're not beating each other's face in, but it, it's an explosive, violent event. Um, and and uh, where we're, you know, punching against the element of water and, um, and, and inner demons. And, um, you know, it, it's intense and there's, you know, testosterone and, and, and desire to win and dominate um, that is very instinctual, um, ancient, ancient, um, primal uh, in each of us that are successful at that level of sport. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it rears its ugly head sometimes. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it happens. How do you feel? Uh, how, how do you feel about the the ultimate um, result of sharing the gold medal with with Anthony in two thousand? I couldn't have written a better script. I mean, I was so first confused um, looking at the scoreboard and trying to figure out who won and if I had been disqualified, which was an immediate fear. You know, this footage of me after the race where I'm just like splinting hard at the board. Like trying to understand like did anthony win or did i win like it took an unreasonably long probably a total of five seconds but the longest five seconds of my entire life where i'm like trying to piece together that oh we tie and um after that realization i i was just like I, you know put it put an arm around each other and and, and uh, you know I, I jokingly say oh it makes perfect sense you know we had the same coach we did the exact same practices every day we ate the exact same meals um but that was the first time that there had been a tie on men's side in you know, Olympic history um, for swimming. And so, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't have expected it, but uh, couldn't have been more thrilled with the result. Do you think at that time, this, is a, this, is a, this could be a stupid question, but it could be a tough question as well. But um, did Anthony overperform then? Did you underperform or did you, were you just both as, as good as each other at that point in time? You know, I, I don't never second guess, like, oh, could I have done better? Like, if I had tried just a little bit harder, I could have been standing on the top of that metal podium by myself. Shucks, darn it, you know? Like, never, 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 never. So, um, yeah, I, 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 was, I was thrilled and, and with, the, with the result. And, um, you know, did he underperform? I don't win an Olympic gold medal. Can you say that you underperformed? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Like what, some people, you know, set those uh, standards of expectation on, on themselves. But no, I, I was able to enjoy the moment and, and the results for what they were. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an incredible performance. Um, it, it really stunned me. I mean, I was, I was part of that group that competed for that gold medal and, uh, you know, it, it didn't surprise me that you won for sure. I mean, uh, I was like, okay, makes, makes sense. But Anthony, you know, in a, in a way came out of nowhere for me because I hadn't seen him training. I, I didn't know much about Anthony at that stage. And uh, to see him get the result he got was like, wow. I mean, that, that was, for me, it was incredible. So, yeah. Uh, but, but now knowing Anthony and seeing what he's done in his career as well is again, we're talking about another legend of the sport and um, you know, I, I, and in a way the tie makes a lot of sense because of the, the way that you guys are built 
like you said, um, very similar in a sense, which is which is odd, uh, because you're similar in the sense that you're both different than most sprinters. You just you're just different. You are. I mean, most sprinters are are more like me. Um, but most sprinters didn't win Olympic gold like me either. So, I mean, you have to be different to be an Olympic gold medalist. So that's what makes you great. When I look at you and Anthony, I think to myself, wow, that these, these two guys could do things that I just couldn't do. You know, that's, that's kind of the way I, I put it down. I just, a lot of people think, um, could you have won the gold medal? You know, they asked me, could you have won it? And I, I'm always content with where I finished because I felt like I got beat by guys that were better than me. I mean, that's the bottom line. You guys were better than me in, in many different facets. And uh, so I think that you were utterly deserving of the gold medal. And it kind of comes back to that. I know I'm rambling here, but it comes back to that um, argument of anybody can win the 50 freestyle. And I just don't think that's the case. No, that's not the case. I mean, there's, Um, in terms of, of addressing how Anthony and I are different, um, so we survived a system um, that drives the most talented athletes from the sport of swimming. That um, uh, so the fastest horses. Um, aren't the ones that win the Kentucky Derby. The fastest horses never had a saddle. And Anthony and I are wild horses, you know, and, and, and the system tries to break you the way buck, buck and bronco busters go in and, 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 and break a horse. You know, and, and if you talk to those people, that's what they're doing. They're trying to break them psychologically to control them. To, they ultimately want them to run fast, but they want to control it. And if there was a jockey I'm riding on my back, I would have kicked him off a long time ago. You know, like I wasn't going to let that happen. And, and neither was he. Um, that we had to have faith and, and the people that we were working with. And that was Mike, but Mike wasn't trying to jockey us, you know, ride us like that or break us down psychologically uh, or inhibit our, our, our freedom, uh, ability to uh, have a life outside of the sport or, or, or other outside interests or, you know, it's control. It's a control thing. Uh, that so many coaches make the mistake of, of trying to control because they're trying to build a formula, right? Like you do this set on Monday, this date, and they've got four, six months of workouts planned and, and, and they're trying to like fine tune this mathematical formula to get X result. And it's not, racing is not a formula. You, can, you have sports science data people that try to make it that way, but in order to be good at it, it's being present and it's a feeling. It's art, not science, um, if you do it right. And Anthony and I both understood that in an innate way and had to fight and fight and fight so much opposition through so many years in order to remain in the sport. And most, any other talented swimmer um, gives up and goes to a different sport. The smart ones do. <laughs> 
Um, and, and I just um, stuck it out. Um, and, and so did Anthony. Um, I, I, I retract that. Actually, Anthony took a, he buggered off, right? Like for a lot of years because he, he, he didn't, he couldn't conform to the confines, um, to the demands and the expectations and stuff like that. It, it's all the structured regiment. Um, like is not appealing to who he is as a person, who I am as a person. And so, I don't know. I think that that is, is probably some of the differences that Anthony and I shared uh, outside of some of the other sprinters. And, you know, I, th I can name a lot of great sprinters who, who are the same. Mark Foster was, was a guy who walked, you know, he walked to his, the beat of his own drum, you know, and, and took a lot of shit for it. Um, from his federation, from media, from teammates, coaches. Um, and, and so, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that we're exceptional. I think that there's quite a few um, athletes out there that just aren't the uh, robot. Well said, mate. I'm glad you put it the way you articulate the way, exactly the way I, I think it, but you articulated it perfectly. So thank you. Um, I do want to touch on a subject that is a little touchy and um, you probably talked about it a few times, but I know that there's a story to it and I, th I don't think everybody knows the full story. So you've told me previously, but I, I want to just put out a phrase and then you can kind of go into the backstory. But um, this one is smash them like guitars. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I cringe. Cringe when I hear it, especially in an Australian accent. <laughs> sorry <laughs> i'm not holding that against you uh i'm holding it against the entire nation of australia <laughs> but i know the full story there there's a there's a really good story to it there's a there's a different side of the story yeah. let's say that yeah yeah so it, it just it was it was a quote that was taken by the australian media out of context um, from what I argue to be the most flattering article about Australian swimming ever written. Um, it was, most of the article was saying how the United, U, United States swimming, which I was at odds with, really. I, I mean, I, I struggled with the leadership of USA swimming for a long time. And so this was an article that was written in CNN, Sports Illustrated, and, um, and, and, and it was on and on about all the things that Australian, because Institute of Sport, Don Talbot, who just passed away, was at the reins and the innovative things that he was doing, how they were professionalizing opportunities for the swimmers and, and how their federations were working to promote the swimmers. And, you know, it was just such a different, you know, that if you were a top level swimmer in Australia, you were treated as a celebrity, like you and, and, and that just wasn't the case here. I mean, there were, you know, swimmers that were just living on breakfast cereal and pizza crusts, um, you know, to get to Olympic trials and top swimmers on the national team doing that. And so that's where my head was at when writing this article. And there was one quote in it where I was like, you know, we, if it, in my biased opinion, and I think that we'll smash on white guitars. The United States has always risen to the occasion and this will be no exception, but we, we've got our work cut out for us. Like it's not going to be so easy this time. And um, you know, if I can wish Australia well in the process and not have them step on our heads, um, then I do. Um, you know, so it was what I thought a very thoughtful um, and, and perhaps 
that's what hurt the most. Um, yeah, we flew to Australia after qualifying for the team and we touched down and like somebody shoves a newspaper. I hadn't even gotten off the airplane. Somebody shoves the newspaper into my chest hard and says, what have you done? Like, and the, the cover of the newspaper says, we're going to smash them like a guitar. And it's got my fit, like face, like giant and like big mouth is like the quote underneath it. And again, talking earlier about NBC and their uh, difficult task of like creating the personas, like I was selected by Australian media as the guy that was going to be the ugly American, um, you know, just the basically Rodney Dangerfield of, of, of the sport. And um, what really hurt was that it was such a nice article about <laughs> Australian swimming. And I was, for probably two weeks, the most hated man in Australia. And um, I thought it was so unfair. Um, it, it tarnished my reputation in the sport horribly. And uh, the, those damages were real. Um, and, and, and now, yeah, I mean, even to this day, I, I was joking about like when I hear, I'll be in a, a bar or a public place and I'll have, smash him like a guitar. <laughs> that, that's a terrible <laughs> some bad um, like, but that's that's how i'm recognized and i still have to like still have to listen to it like, ah, yeah yeah you got me yeah yeah that's uh... oh there was an article that was actually complimentary ne no never mind <laughs> yeah, forget yeah. it so, so tell me this then why did you volunteer then to uh anchor the relay or was that chosen upon you how did that come about yeah, I was, uh, I was an anchor leg swimmer. Um, I was having a great meet. Um, at, yeah, well, at, at trials uh, leading into it. And um, that was... Um, my, my blood sugar, um, which is a diabetes-related thing, um, was, was really, really high for that race. I, I was new to a year, you know, a year and a half into diabetes management, I didn't have it mastered. Nobody ever masters it. Um, but my levels were off for that race. I've never told, talked to, told anybody about that, but it definitely, uh, I, I swam well, swam fast, swam faster than Ian Thorpe. People don't remember that, that I dove in, you know, body length behind. Um, and, and none of that takes away from the respect that I have for the Australian team. Uh, they outperformed us that night, all of us. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a great race. It was a great race. Um, but um, I was outtouched at the wall and so have had to live with that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the things that, you know, you wish you could go back and, and, and change. I don't, I don't think that, that we failed, you know, like we, we were under the world record, you know, it wasn't like somebody dropped the ball or you messed up. Um, that would have stung, but it was it's still a close enough race that, you know, I, I definitely, those are the, the ones that, you know, you, we all have races that we lost by just a little, you know, a little bit that pushes, pushes to do better. 
I uh, I interviewed Jason Lezak on the on the podcast, and we we spoke, and he had talked about the fact that you and him were were never really on great terms. Um, maybe even during that relay, was there um, a feeling that the team wasn't united enough to win that race? I mean, it, is that what he'd suggested? Certainly, by really certainly by two thousand and four, that's what he suggested. That there was, there, you know, we, we can talk about two thousand and four, but maybe even during two thousand. Um, do you feel like you were united at, at, for that relay at least? Do you feel like you guys had a strong sense of team? No. No, because of Jason and I. Yeah, I mean, and I, I respected him, but you know, he he wanted what Papa and I had, and I felt like he he wanted that rival. He wanted to create that rivalry with me. He was a very talented, up and coming swimmer, um, not yet proven himself the way he did ultimately. What you know, I knew that he was capable of uh, in, in two thousand eight and that incredible relay performance. But he, he wanted a rivalry, and it, it wasn't so much driven from him. His agent, Evan Morgenstein, and my agent, Dave Arluck, probably had more to do with fueling that than, than Jason and I. And I didn't really – it wasn't that I didn't respect Jason. I just chose not to focus on it. You know, like I, I was doing my own thing. I had, you know, clear goals of my own. I just didn't want to play a, a, a game like that with him. Yeah. Uh, leading up to uh, the, the Olympics. And so we had a little bit of, you know, weirdness um, between he and I. And um, yeah, you know, I, again, like I, I, he's a good guy and he was a great swimmer. And I respect him. I respect him. But were we totally united on that relay? No. So and, in that sense, do I, think, it... do, I, do I think, let me fill it, finish by saying, do I think that it prevented us from winning? No. I think that we gave uh, an outstanding performance. I think that if we had been a tenth of a second faster, uh, that Australia would have been 1.1 uh, tenth second faster you know like it, it like it, it just 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 the you know it, it, it comes down to racing and so maybe the times would have been different but they were better racers in the pool yeah and it happens you know it's happened sometimes you can't win them all but uh certainly a great race there's no doubt about that but were you then able to is it easier for you to put that loss aside because you don't have a strong connection necessarily with all of the teammates on that relay to then go into your individual performances and, and have the performance that you had like a winning performance because most people would be crushed by that feeling like I anchored that relay. Maybe there's some responsibility there. You know, I'm just being honest with you. Maybe some, maybe that would crush some other people, but for you, you were then able to then go on and have incredible individual performances. No, it was a hu humiliation. I mean, you, you remember, I mean, the Australian media that teed up that 
rivalry thing and took that quote out of context, seized the opportunity and just delighted in the schadenfreude like way of, of, of humiliating, humiliating me, um, you know, and, and what, you know, American loudmouths served humble pie, that type of stuff, like eat this, you know, and, and, and just. Were you reading this stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all over. I mean, come on. Every single newspaper was just like, oh yeah, you know, uh, special Mike guitarist guy. Uh, all the pictures on the papers were the every, you know, the Aussies on top of the blocks strumming air guitars and stuff like that. And, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, I wasn't, you know, uh, able to avoid that. And um, so yeah, I mean, I had to, you know, be dealing with that and trying to pull myself together. Um, for my next race, which was like the following night, that was uh, the hundred freestyle, and I, uh, you know, what I had touched Michael Klim, who broke the world record in the lead off of that four by one hundred freestyle relay, you know, the night uh, before, um, by a hundredth of a second. I kept him off the medal podium by getting a bronze in the hundred freestyle, and I had no business being on those that podium. I had no business being in the finals, really. I, I, I mean, with the diagnosis and, and the time out of the pool, I, had, I mean, I, I wasn't even qualified. For, I didn't have my Olympic trials time standard until the last day before Olympic trials, the cutoff. And we were at a meet and Mike's like, swim the 100 free. What have you got to lose? I made the cutoff for trials, went to trials thinking it was gonna be like a warm up for my 50 and uh, qualified for the team. And just, um, I didn't belong up there. Peter Van Den Hoogen band, like that guy's not easy to beat. Popov, you know, those are the other guys on the, and, and me, um, who was never, you know, really the strongest hundred swimmer, um, even before being diagnosed with diabetes and becoming the first person with that condition to make an Olympic team, like, uh, proud, proud moments. Proud medals in my career, that 100 freestyle. Um, one, because it, it just took true grit to, to get it, you know? And, 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 and because it was on the, uh, the tail end of, of all of that fallout from the, the, the relay and the media and, and having to pull myself together and, and recover from that and refocus um that's that that made me really proud that i was able to do that um, beautiful man and, yeah i love it um you mentioned a few people there and you mentioned the performance that you had so i i'm always interested in the ready room and when i had moments where i was in the olympic final and i walked into the ready room some of my thoughts were oh shit there's gary hall jr you know when Gary Hall Jr. walks into the ready room, what are you thinking? When when Popoff is there and, and Peter Van Hoogenbend's there and Michael Klim's there, and you're about to have this performance that is going to that you you feel like you have no business getting, like what are you thinking during that period of time? Um so I mentioned earlier that if there's eight finalists, um, there's two or three that you have to really, the, the, 
you know, I, I, I knew, and maybe it's just that, that being that many years in the sport, you can size it up. And, and I heard on your podcast with uh, Jack Roach, he said something really interesting um, where he said he was talking about like before behind the starting blocks that you could see the people's eyes darting and stuff like that. And where, you know, the, you know, the thoughts, the negative thoughts, when they come in to an opponent's head, like you can see them, like their eyes start, like you said something to that effect. And, 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 and that's true. Like I could walk into a ready room and just look at the faces of uh, the, the other competitors in there and immediately rule out four just from the look in their eyes. Sure. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of psychology to it. And, you know, I, and an ability to read other people too. Um, Makes sense. So I, I, I was good at that. I was good at that. I, I, I knew, and in terms of the psychology part of it too, and, and, I had plan contingency plans. Um, I, I, I knew beforehand what I could say to somebody if I felt like I needed the advantage that would take them out of their game. And it mm -hmm. wasn't in a mean way, but I knew that if in 2004 in the ready room, Roland Schumann was was one of the guys that had that I had to focus on, and I knew exactly what to say to him if I felt like I needed. And I went in, and I read him, and I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I felt like I knew this as a friend. It's not a mean thing to say. I was going to say, Roland, your dad would be really proud. And that was going to give me an advantage that would have completely taken him out. I, I knew him well enough that something that innocent, innocuous, um, would have had enough in a sport uh, measured at a hundred of a second to. to That's that. interesting. And I'm glad. So, I'm glad you brought up that ready room because I do want to talk to you about that ready room. Yeah, and then yeah, <laughs> a lot a lot more happened in that ready room uh, before Athens. But, um, yeah, so I don't know, I, you know, it, it's, it's a game, it's competitive and, um, you know, I was able you know, to, for the most part, respect my competitors, um, didn't need to indulge, uh, the mind, mind games. Um, but I definitely was, was reading. I mean, yeah, yeah. I was sizing people up. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Well, let's jump forward to 2004. You, you have your win in 2000 and, and you're the, the 53 champion. Um, but 2004 is different. You're, you're coming in and you feel like you're not at your best, but you have, uh, we, we all know this iconic robe that you wore out uh, for the final in 2004, but there's certainly some backstory to it. And, and even the moments before you walk out leading up to that, there was some incidents going on there. So Talk to us about the, the robe itself and, and what happened in 2004. Yeah, so I was wearing bathrobes to the pool and my grandfather 
uh, who I uh, admired, loved, uh, just swimming with him as a, a kid. I used to wear a bathrobe to the pool. And so, you know, I didn't think bathrobes were anything unusual. And I continued to wear them um, you know, through my career. And um, in 2000, uh, Everlast, leading into the trials, Everlast uh, recognized that we were wearing these terry cloth bathrobes and they sent us a bunch of like boxer kind of terry cloth robes. And, and so I, I, like, I had this customized, the, the CEO of Everlast through Dave Arleck, um, says there's this woman in Brooklyn, she's been making boxing robes for Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier dating back you know, to the seventies. Uh, we'd like to make you a customized boxing robe. And so I said, sure, that sounds incredible. I, I, I'm stoked, uh, you know, and, and um, they uh, made this like very flashy silk, like stars and stripes robe and sent it, you know, emblazoned with my name across the back and stuff like that and I'm wearing it to Pan American games, to nationals, to like some of the big meets and stuff leading up to the games. And uh, I get to the games and say, hey, look, I've been, uh, I go to the national team uh, guy, uh, Everett Uchiyama, he's uh, gone from the sport, um, safe sport regulations, lifetime ban. Like he wasn't a great guy, like, he was molesting kids. <laughs> we didn't know that at the time, but um, I go to him, I say, hey, listen, I, I know that there's a uh, uniform policy um, and that uh, sponsors pay a lot of money and I want to honor that. I'll wear the uniform and I'd like to wear the robe that I've been wearing out to all the major competitions that I've been doing, Pan American Games and stuff like that. Um, you know, to the blocks, I'll leave it open so that you can see the sponsor logo underneath. And he says, no, absolutely not. You can't do that. So I knew that I was going to. Uh, immediately. I didn't tell him that. I said, okay, fine. I go back to the room. I roll up my uh, robe. I put it in the towel. I roll up the towel. I go to the pool, warm up. I go to the ready room. Uh, I go into the ready room. Um, they take the credentials. Nobody's in, allowed in there uh, except for the swimmers, no coaches, no trainers, no uh, national team directors. And um, once I'm in there, I put on my my goggles. I put them on the robe. And within a minute, uh, Everett is there at the thing. He's trying to like talk to the security people. And he's like, let me in. I got to go talk to the swimmer. He's wearing that robe. Like, I don't know if he was. And I'm just like watching him. And he's like, Gary, Gary, come here. And I just smiled and like shook my head. Like now I'm past the point of no return on this one. I'm not going back. Like there's nothing you can do. Like you can't stop me. Like, and he lost his mind. He absolutely like unraveled, like his spittle was flying out of his mouth. He's like screaming. He was like trying to like reach over the security guards who had to like restrain him and carry him away. Uh, like screaming at me, like, like reaching toward me. Like he was going to choke me. Like, and I was just sitting there watching this whole thing unravel and, and, and all the other swimmers like, like they, were there, you know, saw a little bit of this like scuffle thing happen. It was over in like a minute. And then he's carried away kicking and screaming and, and, and they're like, okay, finalist 50 freestyle, walk out to the box. And I uh, <laughs> knew that I was going to be in a lot of trouble after the race. Wow. Well, that's a lot to carry because I think, I think, uh, I had an incident with you, not an incident, but we had an interaction probably right before that. So I was actually the first person into the ready room 
and I was uh, I was sitting there. I was I was nervous, but I felt f- fairly controlled. I felt relaxed, but I was certainly the first one there. And by, by my surprise, um, I just like to get there early and kind of get focused and get centered. And then the second person into the ready room was you. You'd already had your cap and goggles on and you had the robe on at this stage. So you, I must have missed you putting it on. Um, and then you you walked over to me and uh, you congratulated me on breaking the Australian record the night before and you, and you shook my hand and you said, uh, go get it again, buddy. Good luck. You know? And, um, and that, that was uh, for me, that was very respectful, very nice, but, um, but I'm sure it was just part of the interaction in the ready room for you in terms of, you know, reaching the room, you know, and get, getting a temperature of where everybody's at. And so I'm sure you could probably yeah. read me at that stage. You know, I, I always wanted to be respectful. I, I, I always, did respect the other swimmers, and, and a lot of times those, those interactions were very positive. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I wanted the same that I stated about the Australian team. Like, without stepping on my head, I wish you all the best. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm out to beat you, yeah. but I want you to do really well. Let's do it really well. Yeah. Um, hey, Brett. I, I I'm so sorry. I I, I got to go. I, yeah. I, I had no. no idea this was. Um, I've got a um, an appointment uh, lesson showing up here. There, no problem at all, my friend. No problem at all. I appreciate your time. This has been fantastic. You want me to circle back and we can do finishes later or something? Or? We we might we might come back for a part two. Don't worry about that. There'll be there'll be we'll put this out and people demand more. I'm right. sure of it. So, but uh, even just this time, man, it's it's been the longest podcast I've had uh, ever. So uh, I really appreciate your time. This is. This is a dream for me. So thank you for, for getting inside your head a little bit. All right. Thank you. Thank All right. You. Thanks, Gary. Take care, bud.